welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the wildly young, unfathomably hip, and adventurously lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's happy Epiphany. Happy good, Baptism yeah. of happy the Lord. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. Good to be with you, Olga. Good it's to be so with you, good Ashley. to be with you both. I, I missed you guys. Yeah, I missed you both, too. You know, I always appreciate the breaks. Uh, they are when, needed. When they come for Jesuitical, but uh, I don't know. This feels like home, and yeah. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. yeah. What are we drinking in our home? Zach? Actually, I think you should uh, you should tell us what we're drinking this week, right. Ashley. So I was looking for some, you know, fresh news stories to bring to Signs of the Times this week. And I came across this great article on the Catholic news website, Alatea, with the uh, headline, the alcoholic drink that's even better for you than wine. And surprise, surprise. Ashley tried to bring this as a Signs of the Times news story this week. Without noticing that this was based on a study done in 2005. <laughs> you know what it was? Ashley saw whiskey and she was like, yeah. we have to discuss yes. this on air. So uh, the answer to the drink that's even healthier than wine is whiskey. So we are drinking Jim Bean whiskey. It's almost like we're doing dry January for health benefits. <laughs> we're just switching to whiskey. Exactly. Uh, and who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week, we are talking with Carrie Alice Robinson. She is the founding executive director and global ambassador of Leadership Roundtable, which is an organization dedicated to promoting excellence and best practices in the management, finances, and human resource development of the church. Since the second wave of the sexual abuse crisis within the church broke last year, the focus of Leadership Roundtable has shifted. So we talked to Carrie about how the crisis has changed the work of Leadership Roundtable and why lay leadership is more important than ever in the church. And also, Carrie is just an amazing person, and I'm one of the things I admire her for is her investment in young people and her yeah. belief Especially in young, young people and young women in particular. And she's been a mentor to so many. And I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Olga? So our first story is coming right out of Washington. On January 3rd, the new Congress was sworn in following a multi-faith prayer service at St. Peter's Catholic Church, which is just steps away from the U.S. Capitol. And our very own national correspondent, Michael Laughlin, has this really great report on the religious breakdown of the House and the Senate. Yeah, so Catholics actually make up 30.5% of Congress, 21 uh, in that's significant because only 21% of U.S. adults identify as Catholic. Yeah, so we're overrepresented in the Congress. Um, and for the first time, uh, the Democrats are more Catholic than the Republicans. So 35% of uh, Democrats in Congress are Catholic, while 26% of Republicans identify as Catholic. And there's a unique Jesuit angle for this too, right? Like uh, we've got 10% of Congress are now alumni of a dozen Jesuit colleges and universities, which is pretty sweet. But it goes beyond the Catholic and the Jesuit world. Yes. So the first two Muslim women elected to Congress were also sworn in, which brings the total of Muslim House members to three. So, you know, we're not necessarily saying anything about what the priorities of the new Congress are going to be. But I think it's important to note the the demographic makeup is that changes that obviously is going to change priorities, too. Yeah, and so it, it doesn't at this point perfectly reflect U.S. society, you know, like... No, not even close, really. <laughs> but, and actually, interesting, the the group that is least well-represented in Congress are are the nuns, the so-called, or the so-called nuns, the people who are religiously unaffiliated. There's only one member who was sworn in this year who um, identifies as a nun, uh, so making up just 0.2% of Congress. That is amazing. But 
We and they make up 23% of the U.S. adult population, which is a that big is discrepancy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's important to celebrate the diversity that we have achieved, but also recognize how far we still have to go. Other Catholic news related to the new Congress. Uh, the Jesuit priest, uh, Father Patrick Conroy, who last year, you might remember, uh, the former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, tried to or did force to resign. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in there was a huge backlash from both sides of the aisle. Father Conroy was reinstated um, and he has out survived uh, Paul yeah. Ryan. <laughs> Paul Ryan is back in Wisconsin and Father Conroy is still st- doing the opening prayer for Congress. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. What's our next story, Ashley? So unlike the government and Jesuitical, which were closed over this Christmas break, uh, the Vatican was working and it has uh, announced a change in church teaching around hysterectomies. So this is when you remove the uterus um, to prevent childbirth. Uh, uh, what, what was the what was the change? So previously, the church had taught that uh, usually hysterectomies are illicit because it's basically a, a form of sterilization or birth control. Um, but it always made exceptions for cases where um, a injured uh, uterus put the woman's life in immediate danger. What it didn't do previously was allow women to get a hysterectomy if the uh, uterus was injured in such a way that a future pregnancy would not be viable. So the change is now um, you can get a hysterectomy if it is certain, medically certain, that you are no longer able to carry a child to term. That's a great summary of past church teaching and current church teaching. Uh, why do why does this matter? Why are we bringing this story? Olga? So I think this is a really important story for us to bring forward because this is not just sort of this abstract matter. Um, a lot of women who are facing the prospect of a pregnancy have often, you know, had pregnancies that are doomed to kind of end in spontaneous abortion. So anyone who has had a miscarriage knows what a painful experience this can be. So it's it's important to know that the church is paying attention to this. Yeah, and the reason that this did change... Um, was in response to, you know, the latest medical evidence that this was an actual problem that women were facing. Uh, Cases were brought to the congregation um, for the doctrine of the faith in which there was this risk that um, a pregnancy was doomed to end in a miscarriage. And it it seemed cruel for church teaching to, to, you know, say that, you know, the only option for women was to just go through that really painful process so so that the church is paying attention to the lived experience of people yeah i think a lot of people think church teaching and science might be like completely different tracks but i i think this story does show that the church is responsive um to science and to the lived experience of the faithful uh what's next zach so our next story is a couple of stories sort of updating it's been a it's been a while since we've been on the air and there has been news in the church is in regards to how it's responding to the sexual abuse crisis that we've been talking about uh, since last summer. Um, right now, the bishops have just, as of recording, have just finished up their week-long retreat at Mundelein Seminary. And so they were on retreat uh, at the advice of Pope Francis, who advised them to take a period of prayer and penance and silence ahead of the Vatican's summit on sex abuse in February. And Zach, you wrote an article about this, um, recognizing that what a lot of people want right now is action from the bishops in response to the sex abuse crisis. Um, And they might not understand why they're, you know, closing themselves off at a retreat and just praying. Uh, Why do you think it's useful for the bishops to be taking a retreat at this moment in the life of the church? 
Well, first I'll say I think that's a totally valid reaction that a lot of people have. And at least more more than a few people like came up to me personally and said, why are the bishops praying about this instead of doing something about it? And so I want to acknowledge that feeling first, that that's valid. And, and the second is that there's this long tradition in the Catholic Church where prayer is is a form of action. It is, and it's not meant to be tied to this abstract notion and conversation with God. Um, you know, uh, John Paul the twenty third uh, said in Mater et Magistra that uh, the see judge act method of Catholic social teaching, so seeing an injustice, judging it, and then acting on it. There, there is this necessary link between um, judging and action. So it's meant to. Um, compel bishops, lay people, all of us to take what we experience in prayer and act on it in our daily lives. Yeah. And it's not like while the bishops are on retreat that like everything has come to a halt. There have been developments um, with regards to how the church is treating the sex abuse crisis, right, Olga? Correct. So since the release of the grand jury report um, out of Pennsylvania last summer, 50 dioceses and religious orders have publicly identified priests of sexually abusing minors. This includes three Jesuit provinces. We talked about two of them releasing names um, our last episode in December. Um, and, you know, more than half of the nation's 187 dioceses have also released names. So it's that's, that's significant. And mm-hmm. hopefully that number continues to grow because I think it's prudent and it's more than time for that number to be all of the dioceses to release and all of the religious orders to release the names just for the sake of transparency. But it's going to take prayer and action. And so uh, that's why I thought it was important to acknowledge that the bishops were on retreat and also maybe pray for them because uh, something else I mentioned in the piece is that like there are a lot of transformative things that can happen on a retreat. I've known this from my own personal life, but it takes a lot to transfer that experience from the retreat to your everyday life and even more so to, you know, church teaching or church governance. And so we should definitely be praying for the bishops. Speaking of church governance, our next story, which Olga will bring, is like a great example of how that can happen, right? Exactly. I'm so excited to be talking about this story this week. Coming out of Fairfield, Connecticut, which is a part of the Diocese of Bridgeport, Dr. Eleanor Sowers was just appointed as the Parish Life Coordinator of St. Anthony of Padua in Fairfield, Connecticut, and she was appointed by Bishop Frank Cajano. Yeah, so basically, I mean, that parish life coordinator, what does that mean? It actually means she's in charge of this parish. There's no priest above her telling her what to do. She reports directly to the bishop um, in the running of this parish. And she's been involved in the parish for a long time, right? Like, So she was the uh, director of religious education and pastoral minister since 2002. um, And she's sort of been in charge of church administration since the death of its pastor last March. Yeah. And so in this new role, she will work with the parish council um, to develop a pastoral vision and mission for this parish, um, in addition to overseeing the day to day operations. So I think we talk a lot about like the need for greater lay involvement in response to the sex abuse crisis. And this is this is a model that has been used. Um, it's this is not the first time it's been done. It's also been used in other dioceses, um, including in Albany and Syracuse and Baltimore. Um, and it's in accordance with canon law. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, I don't want to say that, like, the sex abuse crisis would not have happened if we had this kind of model everywhere going back decades. But I do think it's a promising way going forward to to bring in lay leadership to the church. Yeah, and something I noticed was that, as you said, it's been, it's happened in other places. And I've seen examples of, when I was in Chicago, um, religious sisters in particular really taking up uh, the helm in a lot of churches and caring for them pastorally. But I thought what was super promising about this was the way in which it was announced. Um, It was sort of with this big media rollout Mm -hmm. and 
something to be celebrated and not, you know, looked down upon because of there, there's a vocations crisis or whatever. Um, and I thought that was an important shift in narrative. Yeah. And yeah, I had a similar reaction and just that, that this is realistically, yes, there, there is a vocations crisis and either we can like let our fear of that crisis drive us, or we can, you know, look at positive models of like t- to reinvigorate parish life by drawing on the like tons of lay or resources among the laity um, who are ready to step up and serve as Dr. Sauer. And I personally, I I just love seeing stories of women that are running the church, women and lay people who are running the church sort of pushed to the forefront of people's minds. You know, Ashley, you mentioned this isn't something new. We've seen this at all. We've seen this in other places. Um, But I just love seeing this because I think especially for young Catholics now personally, I can get very frustrated with the crisis that we're going through, but seeing stories like this, seeing lay people in these roles, it really keeps me hopeful. Yeah. Uh, so if you are interested in this story, uh, we do get into uh, this specific uh, situation in Bridgeport with our guest, Carrie Robinson, later in the show. So Stay stick tuned. around. Yes. Ashley, you have our last story. Yes. Yes, I do. A cat. Well, no. <laughs> a man pretending to be a Catholic priest uh, was caught after 18 years of faking it. I have so many questions <laughs> hearing this. First of all, how after, how did it take 18 years for him to get caught? And that, where, so where is yeah, this? Yeah, so this, first? okay, so Miguel Angel Ibarra, did I butcher that, Olga? <laughs> <laughs> um, he was practicing as a fake, fake priest in Colombia, uh, and then in October of 2017, moved to Spain, where he was recently caught as being a fraud. And this guy was like performing baptisms, weddings, confession, given mm-hmm. the Eucharist for 18 years. Wow. And in two different countries. <laughs> wow. But like it goes back to the story that we brought to you before the Christmas break about how there was this new program of giving priest IDs uh, to the priests of the Church of England and Wales. And now we see concretely why those IDs are needed. Absolutely. And my, one, my first reaction was, you know what's, uh, there's this thing they have where you pretend and learn to be a priest, and it's actually way less than 18 years. It's called seminary. <laughs> I know, like, if this guy really, like, I feel like he's put in so many years when he could have just, like, put in a, actually put in a few. A <laughs> yeah, become a priest. Like, that's the saddest thing. It's like, oh, we need to find a way to get this guy a job. Uh, also, maybe treat him. Uh, there's something going on there, but... Um, there's obviously a desire to serve. So how do we get this guy into a seminary? He might have to go to confession to a real priest first. Yes. in studio today is Carrie Alice Robinson. She is the executive director and global ambassador of Leadership Roundtable. Welcome to Jesuitical, Carrie. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Thanks I'm a for... big fan. Oh, yeah, thanks so much. It's always so great to have people in studio. Uh, so thanks for making your And people who here. listen to the show. No, yeah. thank, that means a lot. Thank you. So Carrie, you've described twin crises happening in the church right now, the clerical sex abuse and its cover-up, and the total distrust of church leaders. So how has your work at Leadership Roundtable changed since the latest wave of sexual abuse? Leadership Roundtable since June has taken these twin crises very seriously. Partly that was in response to some 50 bishops across the country and their staffs contacting us for assistance and help and support, which was encouraging. 
but also because this is the greatest crisis I think we have seen in our lifetimes, and we feel morally compelled to be part of the solution. You feel like this is worse than 2002? I do. And I and I have asked myself exactly why that is, and I've tried to ask others. I'd really be curious what you all think about that. Some of the ideas that have surfaced is that, first of all, there's an entirely new generation that is now coming into adulthood who were children or not yet born in, in 2002. So this is fresh news in all of its graphic detail. For others who are older, who were adults and paying attention in 2002, it feels like another tidal wave of um, sorrow and heartbreak. So the cumulative effect of that, especially for people who have been working on this for a long time, is, and I think the idea that like they they had their chance to like fix it and get it right and and we now know that they didn't. Yes. I also think that the external culture has changed, so the me too movement is certainly a factor here. If movie producers and politicians are not exempted from this, why why should bishops or priests be exempted from it? Mm. So the external culture has played a factor today. And then uh, finally, I think it is that the the real outrage this time was about the the sins of commission and omission on the part of leadership, so that there was a sense of how could the bishops exempt themselves from the charter. There was um, a, a growing sense of distrust. The Dallas Charter of 2002. These were the reforms the, the church uh, did in the wake of the Boston Globe's reporting, right? Correct. And bishops exempted themselves from some of the measures that they put on priests. Exactly. So the the sense of outrage among the faithful is, um, why is this still happening? And that's why we properly frame it as twin crises, the sexual abuse of children and vulnerable adults and uh, distrust of leadership. And it's absolutely vital that we restore trust in our leaders in the church. In 2002, when that crisis happened, there were a number of, of uh, committed Catholics, most notably our founder, Jeff Boise, who was astonished, as all of us were, by the depth and breadth of that crisis and what it portended for the church. And he believed that if your faith family is in crisis, you do everything possible to affect healing and reconciliation, that we were morally obligated to be part of the solution. And in fact, to do nothing is to be complicit. So he knew, readily admitted, he knew nothing about sexual abuse of children, but he knew a lot about management of people, facilities, finances, a lot about accountability, transparency, contemporary best practices. So in in asking the question, how could he harness collective resources among the lay faithful to be part of the solution? In answering that question, he created Leadership Roundtable, persuaded me to be its first director, and we never attended explicitly to sexual abuse, but rather the conditions of management of people and finances, which um, if you have poor management structures, it lends itself to abuse or malfeasance or even just poor decisions based out of ignorance. So you're taking best practices from some of the other sectors of society, whether it be business or corporations or 
higher ed or whatever, and looking at what are some of the lessons we can learn for the church? Yes, church governance? Correct. And and we're also looking at other places within the church itself, both in the United States and abroad, where there are clear examples in a given diocese of best managerial practices. And we're elevating those, celebrating them, and arguing that they should be emulated in other dioceses and parts of the church. And so in October, you met with bishops uh, in the lead up to their November meeting where they were going to talk about um, how they were going to respond to this latest round of the sex abuse crisis. Who was there? Were like Was it most bishops? Um, any names we would know? And what were some of the specific um, recommendations that came out of that meeting? So it wasn't just bishops. It was uh, church leaders, secular leaders, philanthropists, survivors, psychiatrists, canonists. And uh, it was a very well-facilitated brainstorming session to add to what we call an architecture of action, immediate, mid, and long-term goals that the church could implement that uh, would help restore trust and confidence in the church, protect survivors, bring justice for victims, place survivors at the center of all deliberations and discussions moving forward, and then commit to these contemporary best managerial practices. A lot of it is predicated on co-responsibility and the role of the laity together with ordained and religious. And Carrie, why why is that lay leadership so important? Just take the Catholic Church in the United States for a moment. Over the last few decades, Catholics have risen to levels of affluence and influence that is staggering. Right. Catholics count among the highest echelons of leadership in every sector and industry. And we are no longer solely an immigrant church. Why, if we're good stewards of all that has been entrusted to us as a church, why would we repeatedly ignore the expertise, talents, competencies, and perspectives of such leaders who, by virtue of baptism, are responsible to contribute to the health and vitality of the church to which they have entered and and to which they belong? You've mentioned this as being a crisis of leadership or trust in leadership. Um, but I also think, I've wondered, do do church leaders trust lay people enough to give up their control over how the church works? I mean, you work with a lot of bishops and church leaders. Do you get the sense that they're ready to let lay people in in a like real way that would mean giving up power? <laughs> yeah, that's such an excellent question, Ashley. And I think it's another difference I can point to, to 2002 and 2019 now. When we were first created, even though we we um, promised the bishops that we were not here to take up doctrinal matters, in fact, we would be uh, tenaciously faithful to magisterial teaching, to ecclesiology, to canon law. Everything we created to benefit the church was vetted through the lens of canon law. Even then, there was still a, a sense of distrust about unintended consequences. So even when they knew us personally and trusted 
us through friendship, they tended to to worry. There was a lot of distrust across the board in 2002. Worry about what? Where this was headed. Um, I remember being told early on in the creation of Leadership Roundtable, your advocacy of lay agency, what you're trying to do, Carrie, is Protestantize the church. And I always quip that my mother, who was raised Protestant, in that in that context, would say, "Why is that the crime of the century?" Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. But we were never trying to do that. We were always trying to be authentically, faithfully Catholic and and attending to the temporal affairs of the church. And I would say to bishops, we know that the church is sui generis. It is unique. It is not a corporation like Home Depot or McDonald's or Coca-Cola. It has a religious mission. Nevertheless, it is comprised of people, facilities, and finances, and they deserve to be managed with the highest levels of ethics, care, uh, competencies, and contemporary practice, precisely because the mission of the church is that much more important, even to the fabric of society, than the bottom line of a for-profit corporation. One thing I've struggled with since since June, um, because... I think there has been this instinctive response of like, okay, like we need women, we need lay people to like get in there and solve this. But it can't be only on lay people. Like that's just not fair to lay people. Like they weren't, for the most part, the ones who created this crisis. So how do you strike the balance between like letting lay people and women especially help and like not making it seem like it's all on them to fix this? Right. Well, it's not that lay people are smarter than the ordained or more worldly than the ordained, or nor is it the case that that um, women are naturally more protective of children than than men. it's It's getting the right people in the room and ensuring that there is diverse perspective. What would you say the unique gifts or perspectives that women do bring in particular for the issue of sex abuse? Well, I'm a mother, and I have two children, and when they were little, my husband and I would tell them, if we ever get separated at a museum, at a park, um, at a playground, if you ever lose mommy or daddy, go immediately to a mother of young children. Like, find a mother who has her young children with her, and she will know what to do. She'll keep you safe until we are reunited. And it's interesting that I didn't say, go look for a cop or go look for a priest. Yeah. You know, I said, mm-hmm. look for a mother of young children. Uh, and I've been haunted by that. N- now my children are young adults, um, hopefully listening to Jesuitical. Hopefully. <laughs> if mom sends it to them. <laughs> uh, and you know i'm haunted by that when i when i consider the sexual abuse that took place in the church and where were the parents and and particularly where were the mothers at the tables of decision making they weren't they weren't there because that is not how we're structured i think it's very very hard for women now to sort of step up to the plate because they have perceived that they're second-class citizens in in some cases. This is why I applaud 
efforts like Jesuitical aimed at a younger audience because um, one of my passions is to ensure that the church is worthy of the talents of young adults, and particularly young adult women, because I think they are alienated at far more alarming rates than young men even. Carrie, one of the things that you've mentioned that I found really interesting is that you think that every you would like to see every bishop's conference report to a board of trustees. What would that look like? And is that something that would only work in the U.S. or would it be work at the international level? What would that look like? Well, the thought is thinking about managing people, facilities, finances, fundraising, all all of those considerations and noting the the crisis that we're in with the church, the idea was proposed, what if bishops' conferences all over the world were responsible, answerable to a board of trustees of ordained religious and lay, male and female, with that adhered to the highest standards of board governance? And they wouldn't be meeting to weigh in on doctrinal matters. It, it would be to manage the the temporal affairs of of the church, yeah. So, of which there are many. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my mom was she uh, worked or just retired, but worked for the Archdiocese of Washington as like the financial advisor, and they were Fabulous. very sorry to let her go because yes. they they admit that they they do need that the perspective of you know a CPA. <laughs> Absolutely, um, I didn't know that about yeah. you and your mom. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, um, and another another example we've been following at America of bringing lay people in was um, the bishop in. You're from Connecticut. I think it was a uh, bishop. Bridgeport. Yeah. Oh yeah, Bridgeport. Caggiano. He yes. appointed a laywoman to be the parish administrator at a church. Um, so she's like she she doesn't come under a priest. Like at that church, she's like the boss um, yes. and reports straight to the bishop. Um, so I'm wondering, have you have you paid attention to that model of lay leadership, and do you think it is a promising way forward? Well, probably predictably, my answer is I love that model. I think it is brilliant, and I have enormous respect for Bishop Caggiano, too. That just makes sense. It makes sense. I think about the mission diocese in the United States. There are something like 80 of our 197 dioceses, our mission dioceses. They tend to be under-resourced, often rural, there are so few priests ministering to the Catholic faithful in in these mission dioceses that um, often the faith communities, the parishes, are held down by laity. You know, or they're they're held down, meaning they hold the fort. You yeah. know, they mm-hmm. and so so they keep everything together. There there's a book that is probably out of uh, print now called "They Call Her Pastor," and it was this phenomenon of women who were active in their faith communities who did all of the work of keeping the faith community together, minus the sacramental life. So I I applaud Bishop Caggiano. I think it is brilliant. She is highly, highly respected and talented and appreciated and beloved by her faith community. And I think priests are grateful, too. Well, and this, and this was told out of a, 
not of a place of weakness or we're out of resources, but as a strength, like this is something good. We're not doing this out of desperation or because of a vocations crisis or anything. Exactly. I thought was a hugely important factor in this. Right. One of the one of the greatest signs of leadership is knowing how to make the match. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You have an identified need for someone, and you are able to fill that need by identifying the very, very best person to do that job. And I think this is what Bishop Caggiano has done in this instance. So, Carrie, the the three of us were too young to during the first round of the sexual abuse crisis in the church. So we've been covering this since last summer. And it's been there have been times where it's been very difficult and challenging uh, for our own faith lives to just talk about this and constantly be following this. Um, how has your own faith been challenged during this moment? Well, I honestly started working on behalf of the church when I was 14. So it's been a long time. And I was aware of the sexual abuse crisis even before 2002. Uh I was in college when I first learned of it, and I was absolutely horrified. It had not yet kind of reached public consciousness. Uh, And, you know, I just, I couldn't understand why we weren't just selling church property and starting over by having mass in a field. And many people thought I was very naive and young, but I still believe that that would have been healthier back then and probably spared us a lot of of ongoing heartache. But where I find faith and hope is there are so many examples of women and men who all over the world out of a faith standpoint are daily waking up and alleviating human suffering, advancing justice, catechizing people, providing education, being signs of hope. And those I have met over since I was 14 tend to have a palpable sense of joy, even when They are at the front lines of human misery and trying to correct injustices or attend to refugees, uh, ending human trafficking. They see the worst that humankind can do to one another and to the planet, and yet they respond out of this deep love and faith conviction. And, And that's the church. You know, that's the church. That's why this management piece and leadership piece is so critical to solve right now. That's actually a perfect segue into our last question. (laughs) Uh, If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional, non-fictional, who would it be and why? Well, this is actually rather easy for me, and it's spoken from a deep place of love because I took care of my closest friend over 25 years, um, all of last year. He was diagnosed a year ago uh, yesterday with glioblastoma, uh, brain cancer. And he's a Catholic priest. He was the Catholic chaplain at Yale University. His name is Father Bob Boulogne. And he died in September of last year. He would be my absolute first choice of a saint. I'm convinced beyond doubt that he is a saint. And the way I know that is if he heard me say this now, he would be the first to say, I'm not saintly. I'm not a saint. I I find that the saints are those who often say, oh, I'm not holy. 
Um, but he had a remarkable ability to attend to young adults, to preach so eloquently and beautifully. He had faith in women's leadership in the church and in the role of the laity. He was profoundly joyful um, and deeply, deeply prayerful. Right. St. Babylon, pray for us. <laughs> Thanks so much, Carrie. Yeah, thank and, you, and, where, and where can people find out more about the uh, Leadership Roundtable? Our website is leadershiproundtable.org. And on that homepage, you'll see a list of resources. So some of the things we've referenced today. Um, thank, and thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it absolutely. really is a pleasure to thank be you in, for coming on. in your yeah. company. <laughs> thanks a lot. Now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we are just like, what, 10 days away from going to Australia, <laughs> yep, which is very exciting. If you haven't heard, Judge Whittacle is going on the road or the planes to <laughs> Australia. Several roads and oceans. <laughs> um, we're going to be headlining the World Youth Day celebrations for the Archdiocese of Adelaide in Australia. And we are so excited. Um, and we want your help, especially if you're a listener yeah. in Australia right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. If there are like you, you, if you listen to the show, you know what kind of stories we like to bring to Signs of the Times. So like we want that kind of story. Uh, from Australia. Yeah, we'll be looking for them ourselves, obviously. But yes. if you have one in particular, send it to us. You can send us an email, jeshwitical at americamedia.org. You can tweet it at us, at Show, Or you can come to our you can come to our events. We're doing a number of events. You can find out more information at cathyouthadelaide.org.au. We'd love to see you in person. We're so excited to meet you if you're coming. And maybe you, if you're not from Australia, you want to buy a last-minute flight, too. <laughs> there are still tickets you can get online at that website. <laughs> Also, we just want to give a special shout out to our latest patrons. We've got Plain Jane, Tanya Lane, Daniel Fister, and Jeffrey Colvin. Thank you guys for supporting us. Thank you so much. And if you would like to become a patron of, or Patreon, a patron of Jesuitical, you can go to patreon.com slash Media. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got the first consolation, uh, my first consolation of 2019. Um, last week, I attended my first watch night service at the Riverside Church. So it's just it, for those of you who might not be familiar with that, like I was, you basically just go to service on December 31st into the new year. Um, yeah, it was pretty exciting. And I feel so religious. Um, and the pastor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was not at church at that time. <laughs> Um, the pastor was uh, Michael Livingston, and he gave this extremely profound sermon about the state of racial justice in America. Um, and, you know, as my co-hosts and listeners know, racial justice is something that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, and I think just hearing him on the last day of 2018, heading into 2019, it really kind of just revitalized me and really just reminded me that the work that I do is a vocation. Um, and I really felt that I saw the spirit of God and the ways in which, you know, he just guides the work that I do. And that was really consoling. That's awesome. And watch, correct me if I'm wrong, because I just read like an op-ed about this, but it started in black churches back in the 19th century as they were watching for the Emancipation Proclamation to go into effect on January 1st. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, no, I, I, I really had no idea about it until this year. And so it's cool to hear about your experience and that you found God in it. Shout out to Enoch for forcing me to go. Now, he didn't force me. He encouraged hey, me. And it was it was wonderful. That's that, Getting dragged to church is, we've all been there. 
Um, I also have a consolation to start the new year. Um, this one's kind of nerdy. Uh, but I've been listening to this podcast for a while. It's called Philosophize This. It's awesome. Um, but, you know, it's a secular podcast. Um, and it's been making me like you know it's not challenging my faith but you know like making me think about like the like big questions like does god exist and like what's the meaning of life and that sort of thing um and one of the things the host talks about a lot is like the temptation to just kind of like stick to a set of beliefs and become complacent um and i didn't want that to happen so it actually drove me to pick up uh Pope Benedict's introduction to Christianity, um, which is just, I've been reading that for the past two months or so, and it's such a beautiful distillation of the Catholic faith. But in, in reading it, it was enriched by my um, listening to this secular philosophy podcast. Like, basically, he spends the first third of the book reconciling the God of philosophy and the God of faith um, in a really accessible way. Um, and so, like, one, the consolation was in instead of like seeing my faith challenged by philosophy and like shutting that door and being like, OK, well, I can't pay attention to that anymore. Like just like letting it prompt questions and then pursuing those questions. And then once I did pursue those questions, like finding within the Catholic faith tradition um, this dedication to philosophy and reason and learning that. Um, was has just been really enriching. So, two recommendations: that's, philosophize this and introduction to Christianity by Joseph Ratzinger. <laughs> that's one really beautiful and yeah, really nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> very on brand for Ashley. And you, I've, I've been talking about my feelings way too much recently. <laughs> and you just happened to pick up Ratzinger's well, introduction I, to Christianity. I, I might have gotten it from my co-host Zach Davis. <laughs> So Ashley gets to read all of my college notes, which is terrible <laughs> and horrifying for me. Um, but what do you have, Zach? I've got a consolation also this week. Uh, so I was really looking forward to this Christmas season, sort of like getting into sort of the spirituality of the incarnation and praying about that more. And needless to say, the holiday came and went and none of that happened. Um, <laughs> I was really sort of just preoccupied with the schedule of the being home and trying to get from each gathering to each meal, et cetera, et cetera, which were all really joy-filled experiences in themselves. And that's Christmas mass at my local parish in the school gym was chaotic <laughs> a little to say the least. Um, and so I had been sort of feeling like my prayer life was in whack, uh, sort of out of balance and was sort of putting off this conversation that I needed to restart with God. But last, well, two nights ago for the epiphany, I took the bus to my parish in downtown Brooklyn and, uh, first miracle of 2019 the bus was on time and got me to mass early um and i know was, you beat me i was I so know, surprised i was well first of all i was like daggone it i'm 15 minutes early to mass. what am i gonna do with this time and so just kind of sat down in the mostly empty church and uh i was expecting this conversation to be sort of like filled with anxiety and guilt and instead what i heard was god saying hey how, how are you doing I'm like welcome i'm glad you're here and having my expectations like sort of flipped again and again in my life and have being reminded of that in a powerful way because of the MTA um, on Epiphany was my <laughs> consolation this week. That's awesome. Yeah, so thank Glad you. you made it. The New York City Transit, not always the worst. <laughs> Great way to start the new year. That's right. <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Josie Weisenberger. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Annie HD, OGA with LMH, Boy Mom 4, Deanna Rapp, and Small Church Community. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.